0: We'll be back in a moment with a new episode of This Is My Silver Lining. But first, a word from David Freudberg, host of the Humankind podcast. If you like our show, you'll probably also love humankind. So definitely give them a listen.
1: Hi, I'm David Freudberg, host of the Humankind on Public Radio podcast. Each week, we tell stories of people holding on to their humanity amid great challenges like how climate change has affected lives in Northern California. I've definitely not given up hope, but I do think that this is a moment that's calling upon us to respond. And we can choose to keep going, to kind of have our blinders on and to not change, or we can take the courage to be the immune system of the planet and for each other at this time. And we hear from a wheelchair user in Pittsburgh who had studied mechanical engineering in college. You know, after having the spinal cord injury, it was actually my doctor who said, have you ever considered rehab engineering? Um, and I didn't even know that was a thing. So that's, that's why I ended up here. We aim for the highest part of people, and their stories will uplift you. Please join us for The Humankind on Public
0: Radio Podcast. I'm Ingrid Busson-Hall. And I'm Kathleen Merrigan. Welcome to This Is My Silver Lining, the show where we pull together the strongest threads of our humanity, courage, kindness, compassion, and gratitude.
1: Our guests explore their toughest moments and how rising to the challenges led them to discover unexpected opportunities, connection, and community.
0: Think about the last meal you shared at a restaurant with friends, your family, or loved ones. The stories and glances exchanged, the laughter, that no-room-for-dessert feeling that magically disappeared when your friend asked the waiter for an extra spoon so that you could share her flourless chocolate cake. The experience of dining is always about so much more than the food. It's about communing with others in special places, making memories. Just off the coast of Portland, Maine, in the Casco Bay, lies Great Diamond Island, the home of Crown Jewel, a unique dining hotspot where you're sure to make new friends and memories while you delight in the chef's creative twists on seafood standards and truly smashing cocktails. A 20-minute ferry or water taxi ride will get you there, but you'll definitely need a reservation. This gem is open Memorial Day to Columbus Day and offers an intimate dining setting with 35 seats in what was long ago a blacksmith shop. Today's guest on This Is My Silver Lining is Crown Jewels creator and owner Alex White. Alex has had a long-standing passion for creating memorable dining experiences. She's made this her life's work. After graduating from Colgate University with a major in religion and a minor in international relations, Alex moved to New York City to work in publishing at El Decor and Vogue. She was drawn to the food business and enrolled in the Institute for Culinary Education. She was trained in some of the most renowned restaurants in New York and San Sebastian, Spain, honing her craft. But Alex is hardwired for entrepreneurship, and she knew early on that she needed her own space to bring her creative visions to life. As with any entrepreneurial journey, getting to and succeeding on Great Diamond Island has not been easy good thing Alex is a calm and steady force, uncompromising in her quest for the right aesthetic, and undeterred by even the craziest of obstacles. I should mention that Alex is a good friend. Our children went to preschool together. I've seen Alex's resilience and zeal up close and in action. Alex, thank you so much for joining us on This Is My Silver Lining.
2: Thanks so much for having
1: me. Thank you for joining us, Alex. Another Connection to Maine, and it isn't even through me. (laughs) Thank you, Ingrid. So, Alex, you opened Crown Jewel in the summer of 2018. And as most of the coastal Maine businesses are, it's a seasonal one from Memorial Day, open from Memorial Day to Columbus Day. So, running a restaurant is really hard work. And yours being on a small island must make all of the logistics, food delivery, guest arrival, and departure even more difficult. So I'm wondering, do you believe that every cloud has a silver lining and have you found any silver linings on Great Diamond Island?
2: I do believe that every cloud has a silver lining. I think that that type of optimism comes from my mother and I have found many silver linings on Great Diamond Island. But what's funny when I think about finding a silver lining, I think about crisis because when we're trying to find a silver lining, it means that we're trying to sort through something to identify the positive. And there have been many challenges along the way. Anything in particular that you want to share with us? <laughs> uh, sure. <laughs> where Where do I start? I gutted crown jewel, when I had just had my third child. Uh, My kids at the time were five, two, and then an infant. And one of the real challenges was simply physical. I spend the school year in Brooklyn, New York, and crown jewel obviously is located, as you have mentioned, on an island in Maine. And a lot of this was done from afar at that time. That was the first challenge. The second challenge is simply the logistics of getting things to and from the island and learning very early on that you are really at the mercy of variables that you can't control. And it requires being patient (laughs) and resourceful. And I think learning those lessons from doing a build out really set me up well for the future to sort of navigate running a business on an island. I'm sure having a project like that on an island is probably the best
1: training (laughs) for actually running the business on an island.
0: You were incredibly intentional about the aesthetic for Crown Jewel, which you've described as universal island decor. This is not your red, white, and blue New England seafood restaurant, folks. It has more of a soft tropical vibe. What were your sources of inspiration for Crown Jewel and how do you want your patrons to feel when they come to you?
2: So I felt like ship knots and lobster traps and buoys and blue and these nautical themes have really been done, especially in Maine. And I wanted to be able to differentiate ourselves from what was out there, especially from a design perspective. And for me, I wanted to celebrate this idea and and the reality that we're on an island, but in a way that felt very universal and that spanned a wide demographic of people. I think one of the fears that my architect harbored when when I was really plotting out the design was that I was going to be catering to a 20 to 40-something age bracket And what's been really lovely over the past six years is the feedback that we get actually from this sort of 50 to almost 80 demographic that talk about Palm Springs and Palm Beach and Havana and how transported they feel. And when they share those stories with me, it makes me feel like I've achieved my design goal for Crown Jewel. So it, it really was drawing from those places and identifying the elements that signify being on an island and being transported, I guess.
0: Hmm. So I have to ask, it's Friday, a week before you reopen. I hear that flappy hour at Crown Jewel is pretty awesome. What can you tell us or maybe not tell us about the cocktail venue at Crown Jewel?
2: We have a lovely beverage director. His name is Jordan Knightley. We work together really closely over the winter to create cocktails for the upcoming season. Jordan has an incredibly extensive knowledge base for just this wide array of ingredients and isn't afraid to take risk. And I really appreciate his courage in that realm. He's not looking to do something safe. He's looking looking to do something that's fun, that's whimsical, that's going to challenge you a little bit. And we've got some some neat drinks coming up for this this season. You'll you'll have to come to the mm-hmm. island to try. I can't imagine what what the pandemic
1: was like. Can you tell us a little bit about that? So you did you you opened a year before the pandemic? We opened in two, 2018. So you had two summers and then shut down. What did you do and how did you how you get through that? That obviously for any restaurant was a really difficult time.
2: Yeah, it was a difficult time and it was a really scary time. There were definitely moments where I thought it would be easier just to keep the business closed, quite frankly. But in trying to be resourceful, once again, and creative and figure out a way to generate revenue that would at least cover, you know, our, our basic operating costs. I conceived of this idea called boatside delivery. And the cove that you pull into on Great Diamond Island, where we're located, has been dubbed for decades Cocktail Cove. So boats love to anchor um, or tie up at moorings and and hang out there. It's really beautiful. You have these wonderful views. And we had uh, an eight foot inflatable and a fifteen year old dishwasher, and we did a. T- a takeout service where Owen would get in the boat and motor around the cove and drop off people's orders to the boats. And it was great. I said we were gonna try it for two weeks, see if it gained any traction. and it did. And we ended up being able to hire a few more employees. and it, it really did generate the revenue that that we needed at the time. It was nothing considerable or significant, but at least you know covered the expenses I was looking to cover. And it was fun. you know there were a few moments during that period that remind me of that awful scene in the bear that, new TV show that's, that's based on a kitchen in Chicago, where he's having this nightmare of the printer, just printing tickets and tickets and tickets and tickets and tickets, and and they can't keep up. And, you know, we, we briefly joked about, you know, how technology can paralyze me. All all I could think about in those moments was, oh my God, how do I turn off the online ordering system? We just, we have to shut (laughs) off. We can't, we can't keep up with this right now. And when you don't work in the industry, I can understand how takeout would seem like a very natural sort of parlay, you know, from a restaurant, but it's not actually, it's a very different business and requires different organization. So we were pivoting and we had great customers who were very patient and willing to kind of pivot and learn with us, but it it was a hard time you know, our dining room was turned into a warehouse of takeout packaging. After all the work you had done. (laughs) And there was, yeah, there was something kind of soul crushing about seeing this place that to me, from a design perspective, means so much because I poured so much of myself into it now being used just as a warehouse.
1: Well, it sounds like your customers were very understanding and Supportive. I know that was like you know on the news every day we were seeing different, especially in touristy areas, um, ice cream stores and restaurants where the the owners were just saying you know people have to bear with us and and be a little bit kinder and have a little bit more patience because we don't have as many people working. We're figuring out a new business model, so it sounds like you're lucky in that regard with your
2: customers. Yes, very lucky. We were thrown for a little bit of a loop because our neighbors who had decided to remain closed had leased us space on their dinghy dock for our eight-foot inflatable. And unfortunately, they ended up breaking that lease, which meant that we no longer had water access and did end up having to shut down our boatside delivery program. But the island community is just remarkably supportive. And we found ways to do family meal, private outdoor dinners, and were able to finish the season strong. But it it was definitely a difficult and challenging moment. At what point in the summer or the season was that? That was really at the peak part of summer. So it was the first first week of August.
1: Oh my gosh. Yeah. in Maine for sure, but nothing... Nothing too exciting happens yeah. before
0: August because it's freezing until then. <laughs> a, a kind reminder to all neighbors,
2: be nice. Yeah. In fact, one of the most moving moments that happened during that time was, you know, just after I had received this communication that we were no longer able to access the dock, I came to the island the next day and and just was feeling very down and very defeated. And you know you have all these challenges in place because of covid anyway and and this just you know felt very petty in some respects but the someone who still has not identified themselves ordered dozens of pink plastic lawn flamingos and they planted them throughout the island and it was a, a very very uplifting you know moment so and that was
1: in, in support of you and your business
2: Yes, yes because our our logo is this flamingo.
0: Tell us about the neon flamingo, Alex.
2: Well, it feels like it reveals a very stubborn part of my nature, but I remember sitting with our branding company, you know, when Crown Jewel was really just sort of in in this idea phase and nothing was out there physically or tangibly and they kept throwing we have this 14 foot tall chimney breast when you walk into the restaurant and it really needed something. And I said, I'd I'd love to do something neon there. And really, truly, I know this sounds like I'm patting myself on the back, but it was before like everyone in Portland was putting neon up in their restaurants. And I said, I'd love to do an animal and the branding company said okay how about a puffin how about and they started listing off all of these main animals and i was like nope 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 see we're we're not we're not going to be doing you know buoys and ship knots and lobsters and lobster traps and i said a flamingo and it it was like you know the record scratch <laughs> and it was like like i had you know like made a, a a statement that was a total room clearer they were like, a what you know I, I didn't know if they were going to continue on with me as a client, but um we have this almost five foot tall neon flamingo that's on the chimney breast, so that now is carry forward in all of our branding.
1: oh, that's so cool, so then got it now I understand the the flamingos all over the island. <laughs> well, that must have been yeah. an amazing moment
2: it was especially you know in Maine. You have to work hard to earn people's trust, especially in small communities. And there had been a small general store in the space before we opened. And I knew that it was going to take time. And it was reassuring to me to see those flamingos there because it meant that they really did welcome us and I think are happy to have us on the island.
0: Small acts of kindness. They matter.
2: Alex, before Crown
0: Jewel, there was Flanagan's Table. In 2012, your mom bought a 66-acre farm in Buxton, Maine, with the intention of using it as event space for weddings, and she had some experience already, you know, with that use of converted barns for, for weddings. With your help and a substantial set of renovations, including that barn, Flanagan's Table was born. What inspired you to create a farm-to-table, communal dining, monthly guest chef dinner concept?
2: So when I worked in Spain, I worked in San Sebastian in the Basque Country. And one of the things that the Basque Country is known for are their cider houses. And I was just obsessed with them. I was lucky to be there when they were active and open and in season. And it was just this beautiful, lovely, fluid way of dining that I think really celebrated everyone that was there. And the environment didn't dictate the level or the quality of food that was being served. And so it it looks something like sitting at these long tables, not necessarily just with the group that you've come in, in with, there could be other families or people sitting next to you. And Partaking in this family communal style of dining, but then getting up when you feel like it and walking into the cider part of the, of the space and grabbing a glass. But while you're waiting to do that, talking and chatting and engaging with those people that are there and going back to your table and maybe now, you know, reshuffling in your seating because you've met a friend in, in the cider part of the house. And I just, hadn't experienced anything like that where you were really connecting with the people around you, definitely over food and drink. And so it was wanting to take that element and that really special feeling and try to put it into play, albeit a little bit different. Mm -hmm.
0: You hosted an annual benefit dinner there uh, for the Barbara Bush Children's Hospital and you featured some of Maine's you know premier female chefs the pictures that i've seen from that event just really exude joy tell us about that event and what that meant for you
2: oh gosh that almost makes me emotional that that was a really special time and those were really special dinners the women who work in the food industry in maine are some of the strongest women that i know and that i've connected with over the course of my lifetime Unlike other cities where the food bar might be really high, or I should say it this way, where the food bar is high, there typically is a lot of sort of cutthroat behavior. And in Maine, it's anything but, you know, there's so much camaraderie and so much support of one another. Um, It's really extraordinary. And we pulled together each year in a way that was just really beautiful, where everyone could bring their best self. Everyone was helping everyone else to do something that, you know, was good. And that was at the heart of it. But we had a blast during those dinners.
1: How did they work? What was the setup of the the dinners there?
2: Sure. So the format of Flanagan's Table was a multi-course um, menu, and so what we did was every chef was assigned one course essentially, but it, it was broader than that. So we pulled in female sommeliers, female bartenders, you know, female event planners. It, it was it was obviously very female centric, but we try to be as inclusive of people who may work on the periphery of the industry as possible to put on these really fun events.
1: So you mentioned your mom at the beginning when we talked about silver linings, and I know that your family has been a huge part of your entrepreneurial journey from Flanagan's table to crown jewel. How have you put your family to work?
2: (laughs) 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 Well, my sister, my youngest sister, who's twenty six is um, going to be home for the summer before she goes to graduate school in San Diego and she sent me a text the other day that said, "Should I work at X?" which was not my <laughs> restaurant, wow. and I think her very uh indirect but direct way of saying, "Just want to let you know, I'm not working for you this summer." <laughs> so I've lost a family member I mean. My mom and I hauled out over 80 black contractor bags when I was six months pregnant before the demo. You know, she has painted so many different spots of crown jewel, whether it's the deck, the indoors, you know, my aunt and my mom do a lot of childcare for me in the summer, which really does play into, you know, they might not physically be working at the restaurant, but it enables me to be able to work. and, And that's critical. I've had my sisters there as servers or in the kitchen, dishwashing, in the general store. I've had cousins come and work. I I mean, it's like wherever you can, you know, have a hole and you've got to plug it up. Hello, come on up, come on over. I need
1: you. Yeah. What do your kids think about it? And how are they? Are they involved at all? and, And obviously, you're not. They're not waiting tables, but are they involved at all in the business? Or have any thoughts about it?
2: my youngest who's 5 who was homesick a lot this winter which feels like a, a you know common story for a lot of people was here during a lot of the menu tastings and she fancies herself a food critic now <laughs> so she she has shared in a lot in a lot of those experiences no i this is going to sound like a really terrible thing to say but it it uh, simultaneously like gives me so much joy to have them there Almost like nothing else, like just so much joy for me to be able to share. With them what I do and why I disappear for 80 hours a week for four months at a time. It's also like my worst nightmare because they see it as an extension of their home. And so they walk around, they take candy and put it in their pockets. I've had a guest come up to me and tell me that my, you know, not knowing that they were my kids, that they were stealing, like these these kids were stealing from the general store. They go behind the bar, which I I think is illegal. I'm not really sure. Like they try to go in the kitchen. you know, it's always a nightmare. They're getting like incrementally better, but it's sweet and sweet doesn't do it justice. But I think they feel a lot of pride in the restaurant and they're very vocal about that. And they love coming out there just as much as they love traveling anywhere else. And that means the world to me hmm mm-hmm. Absolutely. They're proud of you. That's fantastic.
0: As they should be. And it's such such an important thing that they see you working hard and that they see the product of all of your efforts, right? And the sacrifices that you're making. You talked about your mom, but I wanted to double click on that a little bit because your mom had a long and successful career on Wall Street. She founded her own brokerage firm in Portland. What did you learn from her? What did she teach you and your sisters about resilience and taking risks?
2: Sure. Well, I grew up primarily before we moved to Maiden High School in Greenwich, Connecticut. And Greenwich in the 80s and 90s was not a community that had a lot of working mothers. Um, And I was really conscious of that at the time. I lost my father when I was young, and my mom didn't have a choice. She she really did have to be working. Although there were difficult moments when she couldn't be present, I think on the other side of that arc is a woman who has taught us that really there are no dead ends, there are just obstacles and in, in fact it's something that my sisters and I talk about all the time because we're like sometimes you actually just can't do it and you know she has never adopted that mindset which can just be incredibly annoying <laughs> but talk about resourceful she is so resourceful and her ability to maintain this very positive very optimistic baseline for a woman who really has been dealt a consistent set of bad hands is something that that I have tried to digest, but also adopt, although I won't do it as well as she does. You know, It's I, I am very conscious of complaining and really not complaining, but knowing that if I am going to complain, I better have a plan to do something about it because she doesn't allow us any space to to sound like victims or to be victims. And I think that's really fair when you consider her life and and her work.
1: So could we just talk a little bit about the restaurant industry and, and perhaps the diversity a bit? The restaurant business, as you know, is grueling and doesn't necessarily have the best reputation for work culture, especially for women and people of color. But you've been a strong supporter, as we were talking about, of women chefs. When you think back to your early days in the restaurant business, how is it different from what you expected and what has changed?
2: I think there has been a lot of progress made. I think that the pandemic, actually, if there is a silver lining out of the pandemic for the restaurant industry, when so many businesses closed, and it just felt like it was a nail in the coffin for the industry on the whole, was that there There has been this really hard look at some of the issues that, that you've just identified. And this real effort to try to rectify some of those things. I worked in restaurants back of house only really 13 years ago, which doesn't seem 15, 13 years ago, which doesn't seem Like such a long time ago. But the differences that I see now are huge. When I worked at Danielle, for instance, I was the, or DB Bistro, which is one of Danielle's restaurants, I was the only female in the kitchen on the hotline. There were women that worked in pastry, which was pretty typical, um, but I was the only female there. And Like 90% of the employees were from France. They were there on work visas. And French men really don't or didn't, or the men that I worked with, believe that women had a place in the kitchen. And Danielle's right-hand man, Chef Olivier Mueller, who still I consider to be one of my best mentors ever to date, um, had said to me the first week that I worked there, he, he came up and he was very threatening, very menacing, very scary, but he came up next to me and he said, whatever you do, do not cry. And I, I know that sounds horrible, but I'm going to bring this back. And he said, don't cry, don't cry in here or else that's going to be it. You'll, you'll be over. And I said, okay. And he said, I'm going to help you, but that's how you can help me. Okay. So and he really did. And I I worked my butt off at that place. And I I do feel like those guys pushed and pushed and pushed so hard to get me out, right? They they wanted me to be out. And what I'd heard before that was not not many women lasted longer than anywhere from a week to 3 months. But fast forward when a year later I was still there and had very dear friends who worked there. I was standing on a milk crate using a meat slicer and I'm only five feet tall. So I generally have to stand on something <laughs> and which is like pretty much the most unsafe setup you, you can imagine. And someone came behind me and and bumped me and I like kind of nicked off the top of my finger. Oh my God. And, our sous chef came over and some of the other guys came over and he immediately like grabbed my finger and he had this towel and he looked at me and he goes, you can cry. It's okay. You can cry now. And, and I, I actually looked at him and I was like, I'm not going to cry now. Are you kidding? Like, I, I've made it a year. This is nuts. And and he was like, okay. And, and they literally duct tape my finger. And he was like, are you going to work service? And I was like, yeah, I mean, this is what you guys have trained me for. Like, I I can't just like let it all go at this point. But, you know, on the other side of this, you do see so many more women in the kitchen. I think from a color perspective, we have a really long way to go there. Our executive chef actually came from Mexico. He's been in this country for over 20 years. And it's his journey more than anyone else's that I've come across, I think still speaks volumes about the work that we need to do in the industry to make it a more fair and equitable working environment.
0: You're a restaurant owner. You manage all of these logistics. You, like, you wear all hats, Alex. What's it like now as a woman in the business?
2: You know, I have to be honest. I really don't see it through a gendered lens anymore. And maybe that's due to the relationships that I have with other owners in Maine and the amount of women in Maine that work in food. But that that feeling of being in a male-dominated industry has kind of dissipated a little bit. And my focus is more about Within our own restaurant, how to create a safe and a healthy working environment in an industry where it is, as you said, Kathleen, grueling, it's exhausting. You know, there's this need to let go, but how are you doing that? And how are you doing that in a way that's healthy and safe?
0: It is heartening to hear that you actually think that things have gotten better. Um, you you are touching on something that I did want to ask you about though, which is. If you think about sustainability issues and labor issues, sort of under the the broad umbrella of ESG, there are a lot of headlines now, generally, of course, about those issues. But as relates to the restaurant business in particular, Noma, maybe the best restaurant in the entire world, you've been there, you can tell us, decided to um, announce that it's going to shut its doors at the end of 2024, in large part because it doesn't see that its model is sustainable over time what do you think about that generally?
2: I might hold a very unpopular opinion on this subject because the STAGE program has been something that's been in place, you know, for a very long time. And just because it's been in place for a very long time doesn't mean that it's right um, and, and doesn't mean that there should be some change.
0: For our listeners, do you want to explain what, what that is?
2: Sure. So a stage program, basically, you are electing to work for free in exchange for usually experience that is super well-regarded in the industry that really will help advance your career and looks great on your resume. And I understand from a business perspective why that model might not be sustainable. However, every single stage is entering into this agreement knowing that they are not going to get paid. And oftentimes, instead of going to culinary school, people will stage at certain restaurants across the globe in order to gain the experience that they need to to go wherever it is that they want to go. And so it's difficult to listen to others Talk about the stage experience as if it's a type of abuse because someone is knowingly entering into that contract. The fact that you're not getting paid is not a surprise. You are getting paid. Yeah, you're, I mean, you're,
1: it seems. It seems there's that you're a getting benefit. paid in that experience.
0: You're gaining credibility. for it. Right. <laughs> it's an education. Yeah, it's not a financial reward, but it's, you know, you're gaining credibility in the industry and, and a network.
2: Correct it sounds like an education it it is an education um and and that's exactly what i did when i worked at martin berasetegi in spain you know at the time it was a three star michelin restaurant it was one of the world's top uh, it was on the top 50 list and you know that that can open doors later on it's it's hugely important i do think that one of the things that we need to rectify in the restaurant industry is the discrepancy in pay between the front and back of houses and this is something that i do feel like has gained a lot of traction since the pandemic and that the pandemic has really helped because oftentimes you know the people in the kitchen are not making wages that are that are livable wages and they're not receiving tips and there really is this incredible dichotomy b- between the two and so how can we sort of start to equalize that? How can we bring these things closer together? And, you know, people in the back of house now are getting paid more, which is great. Maine just passed um, a bill which allows the kitchen staff to share in tips, which is also fantastic. You know, so there, th- this equalizing is occurring. However, you know a restaurant's net profit margin, no matter if you have 35 seats or 350 seats, no matter if you're packed every night, you know, if you are killing it, you generally aren't making more than 15%, which makes it like the most stupid of business of all time. It's like what, like wackadoodle wants to actually enter into this business Uh, someone certifiable, I should be checked in somewhere. But that cost has to be made up somewhere. And it has to be passed on to the customer. And so when you see these prices, you're like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm paying $15 for a salad. Yeah, I can. Let let me tell you why and really what the profit is here for this $15 salad. But I, I think in order for these businesses um, in order for the industry on the whole to be more sustainable i think we are going to see a rise in in costs across the country you know in in small and big restaurants
1: could we just talk about maine for a second i feel like it, it's maine is just on the forefront of the food i don't know the right word for it but it's it, it, i feel like there are so many amazing restaurants and um so many great stories around food coming out of Maine. And I I recently watched The Lost Kitchen, I think is the name of the show. Have you seen that? Um, do you know Erin French? I do know Erin. Is Erin French? Was... That's her last name, right? It is. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> um, you do know her. Oh, wow. Okay. It's just, again, another woman who has a great story and um, just a, a unique approach, I think, um, to food. And what do you think it is about Maine that is, uh, is it the access to such amazing resources,
2: um, the people, both, everything? I think the access to resources enhances these stories or, or these experiences. You know, Maine still is a place where unless you're working in a traditional profession like a doctor, a lawyer, a teacher, there's not a lot else on offer. and there are a lot of entrepreneurs there and i think if you're willing to make you know this this leap and 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 open your own business you you have a lot of courage you know as as a starting point and you're already sort sort of like drawing from a crowd of people that are resilient and resourceful and creative and have a lot of moxie and i think that's why you know within our landscape, you've got some real characters up there who are doing really cool things.
0: So maybe to close us out, Alex, we're just to let our listeners know, this show will air sometime later this summer, but we are recording a week before Memorial Day and you've taken the time to talk to us um, a week before this season's opening. So thank you so much, Alex. What exciting things do you have planned for this season and What's on the horizon for you and Crown Jewel?
2: I think we've got some really fun stuff planned. It's like opening a new restaurant every season because we don't, as much as I'd love to, we don't retain the exact set of staff from season to season to season. We are doing this very fun summer solstice event with Oxbow Brewing Company, which is one of the most beloved brewing companies in, in Maine, June 21st. and we say that we're here to celebrate summer and it's the longest day of the year. And so we're, we're having a party. And and I think that that's going to be a a lot of fun. We're exploring the idea of doing some Tiki collaborations and takeovers with some of the best Tiki bars um, in the country. And really just, you know, every year it gives us a new opportunity to really dial stuff in to make sure that our level service is the best that it can be it's a fresh slate, a clean slate, if you will, you know, every single season. So the time away from it really allows a reflective period and the space to come back and just be stronger. Mm -hmm.
1: Do you feel ready? Do you ever feel ready for a new season to start? Or do you always feel like, oh my God,
2: it's starting next week. I'm going to answer that in a backwards (laughs) way. I always get to, to the end of September and I'm like, Oh my god! Like, thank goodness, there's eight months until I have to do this again. <laughs> but the planning always starts in in about January, and I always get to like today, and I'm like, where did the past eight months go? What have I been doing? And I, oh my god, we're here again, but we're ready. This season feels so good. We have this new composting program, which is very exciting for us. We are. So far as we know, uh, I, you know, if if I'm wrong, please let me know. But going to be one of the only restaurants, or if not the only restaurant in the country that will be processing its own compost and we'll be doing that on island. So by our estimate, we're gonna have about only 5% waste. And our hope going forward is that um, after a series of tests and work with the main DEP, that we can then package that compost sell it out of our general store to some of our customers and potentially do a little bit of a barter with one of the local farms that we purchase from, you know, they get compost in exchange for fresh vegetables. So So that's something that we are really looking forward to.
0: That is super exciting.
1: All right. Well, um, is there any secret to scoring reservation?
0: Mm.
2: Call early. <laughs> if, if, if you have my cell phone number. Um, <laughs> I know someone who does. <laughs> <laughs> and, but, yes. And the, and the very small community that I live in in Maine, which is about 20 minutes south of Portland, um, they also have my phone number. So uh, <laughs> I would say book early, you know, and, and also we really do go through our wait list. We do pay attention to it. So don't be afraid to put your name on it. And always call. I, you know, it, it, this—that's my mom's attitude, right? It's like coming through here. It's, you know, you don't see anything online. That doesn't mean it's a dead end. It doesn't mean you can't get in. Give us a call. We try. Okay, good to know. Love Thank you Alex. so
0: much. Thank you so much. It's exciting. Have a great season.
2: Thank you, guys. Thank you.
0: That was so fun, Kathleen. Um, she's oh,
1: it's, it gets me excited for summer. It sounds like such a unique
0: experience, too. She's so creative, so innovative, and just has so much energy around really everything she works on. So I'm I'm so glad.
1: I loved her her story about when the kids come to visit, because I was thinking about how and how proud they are, because I was thinking about how much more interesting it would be to be her child visiting her at work <laughs> than it would be to visit, you know,
0: one of us at a law firm or working from What's with that Kathleen. Come on. So I
1: think I get it. I get it. I get why they want to be there. I'd be stealing the candy too.
0: And we also get why she has, you know, can't have them. <laughs> yeah.
1: Yes. Yes. That's not a good combination.
0: Well, for our listeners who may find them their way to Maine, it's a really special place. The whole experience taking the boat and getting over there and also just um, there's no doubt you will meet Alex, her other family members and and have a really enjoyable experience. So we highly recommend it. Well, great, Kathleen. Till next time. All right. Thank you. Keep looking for those silver linings. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to This Is My Silver Lining with us, your hosts, Ingrid Bouchon-Hall and Kathleen Merrigan.
1: This show is edited and produced by the amazing John Kaur at Wayfair Recordings. And our original show art is by Alyssa Love. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you love hearing these inspirational stories, please follow, rate, and review our podcast
0: on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Please join us again next week when we'll be back with a new episode. We're always looking for silver linings. So if you have one you'd like to share, let us know. You can always find us on Instagram or on our website, thisismysilverlining.com. Be sure to check out the links and resources in our show notes.
1: Have a great week. And until next time, keep finding those silver linings.